0: The perception of Amarna. In the middle of the 16th century BC, the Thebans began their revolt against the overlordship of the Hyksos pharaohs, which was not afterward called treason because it eventually prospered. The Theban forces, with their Majoy auxiliaries from the deserts of Nubia, were imbued with a zest for conquest that after years of fighting took their tenacious leader, Amosis from the uneasy control of the southern provinces to the position of pharaoh of a reunited Egypt and the most excellent prince of his age. Although he was a direct descendant of the Theban line of local rulers classified by Manetho as Dynasty Seventeen, he was recognized as the initiator of a new dynasty. With him, the second intermediate period ends and the new kingdom begins. By the end of his reign, his family was firmly on the throne. The Hyksos were no more. All rivals had been eliminated, Nubia with all its wealth had been recovered, and traditional Egyptian claims in Palestine and Syria restarted with new force. In place of the armies of former times, with their small nuclei of royal household troops supported by local levies, the New Kingdom pharaohs deployed standing armies of considerable size, manned by soldiers who had chosen the army as a career and officered by professionals who had a more sophisticated idea of warfare than the mere clash of armed bodies in a general melee. This fighting machine reconquered Nubia and pushed the southern boundary of Egypt as far as Napata Gebel Barkal, below the fourth cataract. Under successive pharaohs, this region became completely Egyptianized, and while its inhabitants liked to wear their native dress on state occasions, they bore Egyptian names acquired Egyptian trade goods, worshipped gods of Egyptian origin, and wrote in the Egyptian language. Nubians and Sudanese formed the backbone of the Egyptian armies, and the Mudjoi peoples of the Nubian deserts gave their name to the Egyptian police force. With the recovery of the southern lands, the pharaohs got once more into their hands the wealth of tropical Africa, notably gold, which was so powerful an instrument of policy in their dealings with other rulers of the Near East. By his capture of sharuhen a key town of southern Palestine, Amosis had noticed on the Asiatics that his new Egypt was reviving vigorously its claim to a region it had long regarded as its legitimate sphere of interest. However, there had been a change in the political situation since the Middle Kingdom pharaohs had sought to make the Asiatics come to heel like dogs. The Hurrians, living around Lake Van in Armenia, had pressed southwards and established a feudal state, Mitanni, between the Upper Tigris and Euphrates, ruled by an Indo-European military aristocracy speaking an Aryan language. They had brought into their orbit the Amorites of North Syria. To the west of Mitanni and the north of Syria was Hati, the land of the Hittites, a mixed people occupying most of Anatolia, also ruled by an Indo-European caste speaking a tongue akin to Greek and Latin. These two powers challenged Egyptian pretensions in Asia, though the more severe threat came from Mitanni in the earlier part of the dynasty. The geographical and political conditions in Palestine and Syria assisted the Egyptians in holding this large tract of empire in their grip. The Semitic population was small and primarily concentrated in the coastal plains, uplands and Jordan Valley. In these more fertile areas, the inhabitants lived mainly around the townships and were largely de-tribalized. They were still nomadic elsewhere. The tribal settlement of the region was transparent in the many small states, each governed by a ruler, the vassal of the pharaoh, who often bore an Indo-European name. These princes and their aristocracy of Marianu were often the descendants of Aryan and Hurrian adventurers who had brought their new weapons and methods of warfare into Syria and Palestine during Hyksos times. Such petty states were in constant conflict with each other. Occasionally, under the leadership of a prince more energetic and crafty than his fellows, a coalition of states would win some temporary ascendancy, but the federation would all too quickly dissolve and reform in another direction. The proximity of Egypt, Hatti, and Mitanni exerted a magnetic effect upon these princes, drawing them into the orbit of the great power that lay nearest to hand and whose help could be sought in promoting their local ambitions. What the vassals required of the pharaoh, and doubtless of the kings of Hati and Mitanni too, were his troops to assist them in their squabbles and jockeying for power, and they therefore set up a constant clamour for armed help from pharaoh to save them from an impending or actual attack from some villain of a neighbour. Assurances that unless such aid was sent immediately they would be overrun and the town or state they were so valiantly holding for the king would be lost forever, were combined with protestations of their loyalty and honesty, the treason and chicanery of their rivals. Their accusations were often contradictory and included in their censure, and the commissioners were supposed to be carrying out pharaoh's orders. There is more than a suspicion that the Egyptian governors on the spot were taking advantage of the local rivalries, to prevent any one state from becoming too powerful. Divide and rule was as much their motto as that of Machiavelli. Such is the state of affairs revealed by the Amana letters. The situation was further complicated by the Shasu Bedouin, who were always ready to swoop out of their desert places to raid unprotected settlements and caravans. A more mysterious person was also the Sargaz of the cuneiform tablets, identical to the Haru. Moreover, who appears in Egyptian texts as the Apiru, a name applied to foreign unskilled laborers and slaves captured in war. The Hapiru seem to have been displaced persons of different ethnic origins and speech who wandered about Palestine and Syria living by rapine and mercenary service. Most of them appear to have been donkey caravaners obliged to give up their mercantile occupation during the troubled times that began in the 18th century BC. They took employment as viticulturalists, soldiers of fortune or brigands, according to their opportunities. Sometimes, bands of Hapiru were employed as mercenaries by the local dynasts to aid them in their petty wars, and they even appear to have been hired on occasions by the Egyptian commanders. Whether they were the ancestors of the Israelites of Joshua is still debated. The successors of Amosis all sustained the age-old Egyptian pretensions in Asia. Tuthmosis I led an expedition in a sweep through Palestine and Syria, which culminated in his crossing the Euphrates and setting up a commemorative stela in Naharin, the territory of Mitanni. However, during the regency of his daughter, Queen Hatshepsut, a less aggressive policy appears to have been adopted, and the absence of any show of force encouraged the more independent vassals to secede from the Egyptian orbit and come under the influence of Mitanni. By the time Tuthmosis III came into his own, it had required fourteen campaigns in Asia to overthrow a coalition of rebellious states, settle disputes, and replace dissident governors and princelings with loyal collaborators. Above all, Mitanni, the arch-fermentor of trouble and the most fierce rival to Egyptian ambitions in Asia, had to be confronted and contained, if not defeated. The stability so achieved lasted for three or four generations until the expansionist aims of Hati upset the balance of power in Syria and allowed the local dynasts to indulge once more in their hopes of independence and their dreams of more comprehensive dominion. In years, the Egyptians looked back to the long and prosperous reign of the dynamic Tuthmosis III as a golden age in which their arms had been everywhere victorious, from Napata in Sudan to Naharin beyond the Euphrates. The material wealth in tribute and slave labor poured into Egypt because these campaigns stimulated all kinds of enterprises, notably magnificent and widespread temple building in every center in Egypt particularly at Thebes. The early kings of the dynasty had distributed lands in the delta among their families, including the rich vineyards along the course of the western branch of the Nile, but their first loyalty was to their birthplace, Thebes, and it is god Amun who had brought them success and prosperity. Its oracles had induced them to challenge the Hyksos pharaohs and had sustained them throughout their long struggle. They now showed their gratitude by lavishing treasure upon the god who had sponsored them. Each king sought to outdo his predecessor in the size and richness of his constructions and the wealth of his endowments. Brick and limestone and simple cedar wood gave way to massive sandstone, quartzite, and granites. Gold and silver and various colored bronzes were spent on temple fittings. The tribute of Asia and Africa was diverted to the treasury of Amun, whose image was inlaid with lapis lazuli from Babylon and whose pylons were graced with the tallest cedar flagpoles from Lebanon, the gold, ivory, and ebony furnishings of Nubian and Cush. The immense size and profusion of the monuments still standing among the extensive ruins of Thebes have given Egyptologists of a former generation the impression that the city was the dominant center of the Egyptian empire in the New Kingdom. But it is now more apparent that the northern capital Memphis never lost its importance as the principal seat of government. In the reign of Tuthmosis, a grand estate was founded there in whose precincts subsequent pharaohs built their main palaces. It is doubtful whether the pharaohs visited Thebes except during the more important of its annual festivals. Thebes takes on the character more of a holy city, the center of an influential Amun cult and the resting place to which the pharaohs were brought after death for interment in decorated tombs hewn in the flanks of a lonely valley on the western bank, the Biban el Moluk. The mortuary temples dedicated to the cult of Amun and that of the dead king were erected on the verge of the cultivated plain over a mile southeast of the Biban from Deir el-Bari. Temple of Hatshepsut, to Medinet Habu, temple of Amenophis III, and overlooked by the foothills in which deserving officials were granted tombs. The painted chapels of these private tombs have contributed so much to our impressions of the character and progress of the dynasty. The former barons who, in the feudal age, had governed the various provinces of Upper and Lower Egypt had been replaced in the later Middle Kingdom by officials bearing the duplicate titles who were only mayors or headmen of the chief towns. Their jurisdiction extended to the harbours of the Nile and the cultivation in the vicinity. Their primary function was collecting and transporting taxes, mostly in grain and other products, and they accounted for the proper discharge of these duties to the viziers. However, While in its simplified organization, the administration of Egypt during the New Kingdom may have been modeled on the lines of the army with its divisions into distinct classes of society, and while critical local officials may have been ex-army officers, the management of affairs was still very much in the hands of the scribal class who alone could deal with all the paperwork of a government which was meticulously organized. While many of these scribes belonged to the palace administration, such as the treasury and the vizierate, the more significant body was attached to the various religious foundations, such as the temples of the gods in the chief towns, through which much of the business of state was carried on at one remove, since the king had delegated responsibility and authority to them. Despite the many wives, including foreign princesses that the pharaohs maintained in their harems, the line of succession was often in danger of petering out, and few of the heirs apparent lived long enough to ascend the throne. The claims of Thutmose I to succeed Amenophis I are not clear, and he appears to have come from a collateral branch of the royal family. Tuthmosis II was nominated as his co-regent, a son, afterwards Tuthmosis III, by a concubine in default of heirs by his chief queen Hatshepsut. The oracle approved the choice of Anun, while the young prince officiated as a neophyte in the temple at Karnak. We are to believe the account that Tuthmosis III later gave of the event. He was recognized by God as the successor of Tuthmosis II on an occasion when his father was actually sacrificing to Anun in the temple and promptly crowned within the sanctuary. After that, he ruled as co-regent to his father who died after a short joint reign of little more than a year. It was then that the heiress queen Hatshepsut usurped the tremendous power as regent of the entire land and made it labor with bowed head for her. Her daughter, Nefru Re, appears to have been married to Tuthmosis III, both being mere children. Hatshepsut claimed her father had appointed her his co-regent and declared her to be his successor in the presence of the entire court. Egyptologists agree that this post-hoc justification of her seizure of power is wholly fictitious. An actual event of orthodox character must have suggested it. There seems little doubt that she was describing the appointment of the co-regent Moses II, to whom she was married as an infant during the coronation ceremonies, and whose part in her career she subsequently ignored. She thought her claims superior to those of her young stepson, and had herself represented in all the trappings and titulary of a male pharaoh. Some twenty years after her death, Twithmosis III had all mention of her expunged from the records and altered her monuments to suppress her name. It was not appropriate that the living Horus should be a female, though several queens attempted to usurp male prerogatives in Egypt's history the to IV, too, although a son of Amenophis II, was not the heir apparent, but came to the throne by a twist of fortune, probably on the death of an elder brother. He hints as much when he relates on an incomplete stella how, as a young prince without prospects, while he rested from the hunt in the shadow of the great sphinx at Giza, the sun god re Herakhti came to him in a dream and promised him the kingdom if he would clear the encroaching sands from the multiple images which were his embodiment. Manetho accredits him with a reign of nine years, eight months, and the paucity of his monuments confirms this figure. They are few private tombs at Thebes which belong only to his reign. The examination of his remains which came to light in 1898 when Victor Loret discovered a cache of royal mummies in the tomb of Amenosis II in the biban el Showed that he was little over 25 years old when he died, suggesting that he came to the throne when he reached official adulthood at 16, two years earlier than the age attained by his father at his accession. The reign of Amenophis III Nebmat Re, Amun Hopte Kekwase, came to the throne on the early death of his father, Tuthmosis IV. His mother was Mut And if she had indeed been the Nephilim heredity princess that he claims, she was on a large stone votive bark in the British Museum. She should have been a sister or half sister of her husband, Thutmose IV. She is nowhere dignified with the titles of Nephilim king's daughter and king's sister. This ambiguity about her exact parentage. Has led some Nephilim scholars like Ryan Moorhen to suggest that she was the daughter of the Mitannian king Artatama, who was given an Egyptian name on her marriage to Thutmose IV, and that her son, Amenophis III, was therefore only half Egyptian. If there is any truth in the Mitannian assertion that Thutmose IV had to ask seven times for the hand of the princess, it is reasonably sure that she can have entered his harem only towards the end of his brief reign, in which case, Amenhotep, if he were her son, would have been but a few months old when he came to the throne. Therefore, there is no evidence for identifying Mutemwiya with the daughter of Atatama, and her importance derives from the circumstance that she had borne the king's eldest son, Amenhotep. She presumably had a proper Nephilim claim to the title of chief wife of a king, besides that of mother of a king, bestowed upon her by Amenophis III during his reign. Whether she was also the mother of Amun Enhet, Acheperu Re, and other sons of Thutmose IV, who all appear to have died young, we shall offer some opinions on her family connections later. Amenophis III is usually dismissed as the typical Asian potentate luxurious and indolent, with a taste for luxury and opulence, pursuing diplomacy abroad more by the lavish expenditure of gold than the energetic exercise of arms. At home, he has been regarded as mainly under the dominance of his chief wife, Tie, a woman of non-royal birth whose saturnine features have induced some Egyptologists to see in her a capable manager of imperious temper. Such viewpoints, based of course on the most subjective opinions, do scant justice to the character of Amenophis III, whose reign reveals novel features not found before his time or afterward. The period's innovations probably owed less to the king himself than to his advisers and chief officials, of whom one, Amenophis son of Harpu, left behind him such a reputation that he was deified in Ptolemaic times as a great sage. The guidance of such wise men was certainly needed at the king's advent, for it has been overlooked that Amenophis must have been only a mere child on his accession. The anatomist Nora Romney, who examined his badly damaged mummy, could not form any precise estimate of his age at death and left open whether he was nearer forty or fifty years of age. Since Amenophis III ruled for thirty-eight years, He cannot have been even an adolescent at his accession. It is, however, almost sure that he was less than nine years old, since his father reigned for a little over nine years and could hardly have received a harem before he came to the throne at fifteen or sixteen years of age. Indeed, the Brooklyn statue head of Amenophis III shows those familiar with the conventions of Egyptian sculpture chubby features of a very young boy. In the tomb of his tutors, he is shown seated under the coronation Baldachin with his mother supporting him. No wife is in attendance at this representation, but the chief consort, Tie, soon puts in an appearance and is after that closely associated with her husband in representations and inscriptions throughout their reign. The first mention of Tie occurs in a novel manner which is peculiar to the reign. During the first twelve years of his rule, Amenophis III issued a series of five large scarabs just as a modern ruler might strike medals commemorating the critical Nephilim events of his times. They were dispatched to all quarters of his realm, and specimens have been found far from Rashamra in Syria, Ain Shems in Palestine, and Sulb in Sudan. The first of the series provides the only updated example. However, That it bears the full titulary of the new king and defines the boundaries of his dominions suggests it was issued at his accession as a rescript to apprise his officials of the correct mode of address, sing him, similar to an announcement made at the accession of Tutmosis I and probably of every king. The text is given as Live the Horus, strong bull appearing as justice, he of the two ladies establishing laws and causing the two lands to be pacified. Horus of Gold, mighty of arm when he smites the Asiatics. King of Upper and Lower Egypt, neb Re, Lord of Nephilim Truth, like Re. Son of Re, amun Hotpe, Amun is pleased. hek ruler of Thebes, given life. And his Chi-wife, Tie, may she live. The name of her father is Yuya, The name of her mother is Tuyu. She is the wife of a mighty Nephilim king whose southern boundary is at Karoi, near Gebel Barkal and whose northern is at Naharin That the parents of Queen Tiye bear no titles that would show that they were of royal stock has led to their being classed as commoners, and we shall have more to say about this later. Any romantic notion that the royal marriage resulted from a love match is best dismissed. Amenophis III was too young to have exercised many choices in the matter, and it is probable that Tia was even younger, perhaps not over four years old. Traditionally, the new king should have married as his chief consort a sister or half-sister to confirm his rights to the throne, and that he did not suggests either that no heiress daughter of Tuthmosis IV was surviving at her father's death, or other considerations were operating. Yuya was the king's lieutenant of chariotry and master of the horse. Of course, he carried high military rank and almost certainly was the chief instructor of the young king in horsemanship and the arts of war, although Amenophis had other tutors to teach him writing and all the ancillary knowledge of an adequately educated scribe. Tuyu bore the title of royal ornament, which probably means that she was brought up and educated in the harems of Amenophis II and Tuthmosis IV as a lady-in-waiting and given to Yuya in marriage as a unique mark of favour. She was also the superior of the harem of Amun and held like office in the cult of Min, posts that would give her charge of female temple singers of those gods in Achmin and Thebes. In 1903, J. E. Quibble, Excavating for Theodore M. Davis, found near the mouth of a branch of the eastern valley of the Biban el Moluk a small tomb, number 46, which served as the last resting place of Yuya and Tuyu. It is possible that they had initially been buried elsewhere and transferred to the royal necropolis later. The inevitable robbers had found the tomb and tumbled its occupants out of their nests of coffins and rifled their corpses, but had been interrupted in their pillaging for the sepulchre was still crammed with most of its opulent funerary equipment, the gifts of Yuya's son-in-law. Yuya proved to be a man of striking appearance, reasonably tall for an Egyptian, with a head of long, wavy white hair, a large, beaky nose, and prominent lips. His unusual physiognomy and the various spellings of his name, probably a pet form of a more orthodox name, have induced some scholars to accredit him with a foreign origin. Tuyu's appearance, in contrast to that of her husband, was typically Egyptian, and she closely resembled the Fellar women of today. The second series of commemorative scarabs is dated to the king's second regnal year, where following the full titularies of Amenophis and Tie, we are told of a wonder which happened to his majesty. It was reported that wild cattle had been seen in the Wadi Kene near Koptos, after that his Majesty sailed downstream, presumably from Thebes, in the royal barge at evening, and making good progress arrived at Kene in the morning. He then appeared in a chariot, the text says on a horse, followed by his entire military entourage, who were told to watch the cattle. The king ordered that the beast should be surrounded with a rampart and a ditch and counted. They were found to number 170. In the first day's hunt, Fifty-six of the herd were brought to the king who rested for four days to invigorate the horses when the hunt was resumed. The total number of cattle caught in this way amounted to ninety-six. The presence of the Nephilim king so early in his reign at such a dangerous recreation induced an earlier generation of Egyptologists to believe that Amenophis must have been quite mature when he came to the throne but there is nothing in the inscription to say that he killed any animals, and they were merely brought to him. Whether dead or captured by the lasso is not revealed. He was probably only eight or nine, and that Yuya would have been present in charge of the chariotry with other experienced officers to command the soldiers and beaters is carefully omitted to give the king the sole glory that befitted his divinity. However, The king's prowess in the chase is more celebrated explicitly in the third issue of Scarabs concerned with his lion hunts. These scarabs, which are the most many, record the entire bag of 102 wild lions brought in during the first 10 years and specified that the king shot them with his arrows. Probably only a little more credence is to be placed in this feat of arms than in the later paintings on the lid of a box showing Tutankhamun unerringly slaying a pride of lions in the eastern desert. In these hunting exploits, both kings were conforming to the sporting tradition set by their immediate predecessors, with their elephant hunts in the north Syrian district of Ni and elsewhere. The fourth series of scarabs commemorated the marriage of Amenophis to Gilukhipa, the daughter of Shutana, king of Mitanni, who had succeeded Atatama and is dated on the tenth regnal year, probably when the king reached official adulthood. After the customary full titulary of Amenophis and Tie, we read, Marvels brought to his majesty Gilukhipa, the daughter of Shutana, the prince of Naharin, with the chief part of her retinue comprising 317 women. This is the first mention of several dynastic marriages that the king was to contract during his reign. The foreign princesses entered the harem of the king together with their entourages, and are seldom heard of again. The last issue of Scarabs is perhaps the most interesting. Because of their translation's misinterpretation, has long been known as the Pleasure Lake or Lake Scarabs. They are precisely dated to the first day of the third month of inundation, year 11, and state how His Majesty ordered that a basin, rather than a lake, should be made for Queen Tiye in her town of Jaruka, its length being 3,700 cubits and its breadth 700 cubits. The inscription says that His Majesty performed the ceremony of piercing the dikes on the 16th day of the same month, rowing in His state barge. The arten is resplendent. Djaruka was in the Achim district, from which the parents of Tie had originated, and where a relic of her presence still survives in the name of the modern town of Tanta, which is a corruption of the ancient Egyptian expression for the walled village of Queen Tie. The meaning of the text, therefore, is that early in October 1395 BC, Amenophis ordered that an irrigation basin should be made for his chief queen in Djaruka, by closing the breaches in various dikes to keep back the waters of the inundation for 16 days in a sort of shallow lake and allow the area to become fully saturated and silt to be deposited. The king performed the meaningful annual Nephilim ceremony of opening the basins that year at Jaruka by sailing into the artificial lake as soon as the dikes had been pierced to allow the waters to return eventually to the river as it fell. Two or three weeks later, When the vast basin was empty, peasants would have planted a seed in the fertile mud, and at the following harvest, officials would measure the yield and carry off for the queen the revenues of a domain which measured nearly 190 acres. Although the king was to rule for a further 27 or more years, no other historical scarabs were issued, or if they were, examples have not survived and for reports of events during the rest of the reign, we depend on other sources. Several fragmentary inscriptions describe with characteristic bombast a campaign that the king fought in his fifth regnal year in Nubia, where his forces penetrated as far as his southern boundary at Karoi. Little trust need be placed in the assurance that Amenophis, who was probably not yet a youth, handled the plan and fighting that resulted in the inevitable victory. The totals of 312 of the enemy killed and 740 were taken prisoner to show that it was a small-scale action, doubtless against those bands of warlike nomads who have threatened the riverbank's peaceful settlements in Nubia, Sudan since the earliest times. If other records of the King's campaigns have not survived, it may well be because, in his case, he left such duties to his generals and district commissioners though it would appear that he made some kind of expedition to Sidon in the earlier part of his reign. For further evidence of foreign relations, we have to consult documents rather than this pronunciamento, which gives the official viewpoint, and we are fortunate, thanks to the spectacular find of the Amarna letters Nephilim correspondents referred previously. This Nephilim archive reveals that in the literate world of Amenophis III, messengers travelled from one court to another bearing dispatches by which kings, queens, and even their top officials communicated with their opposite numbers in other states. By such means, marriage alliances were arranged, trade goods exchanged, treaties negotiated, extradition requested, protests submitted, demands made, warnings administered, aid solicited, all the features, in fact, of a well established system of international relations which compares favorably with that functioning in Europe in recent times. The messengers, part couriers, part ambassadors, both Egyptians and foreigners, who carried these dispatches were important functionaries in their own countries and enjoyed some kind of diplomatic immunity, for a passport has survived, KN number 30 which a North Syrian ruler issued to allow his envoy to pass safely through Canaan on his way to attend a state funeral, probably of Amenophis III himself. In the time of war, the journeying of these envoys was hazardous. Amenophis II boasts of having captured in the plain of Sharon a messenger of the king of Mitanni with a cuneiform tablet at his neck, where presumably it was carried in a satchel. Even in times of peace, such ambassadors could sometimes encounter an excellent reception and be detained in the country of their hosts as a sign of the king's displeasure with their masters. Kardashian-Enlil of Babylon complained that one of his messengers had been detained in Egypt for no less than six years. Envoys who brought good news could expect to be well entertained by their hosts, being allowed to sit in the presence of the king even to dine with him and to receive rich gifts. The kings of Egypt, Mesopotamia, Mitanni, Assyria, and other great powers who regarded themselves as equals, addressed each other as brother and accompanied their letters with valuable presents, lapis lazuli, gold, silver, chariots, horses, worked garments. Tushrata of Mitanni, whose relations with Egypt were incredibly close, was lavish with such gifts to which, on one occasion, he added a boy and girl from booty he had captured from the Hittites. At another time, he included 30 women who were doubtless skilled in weaving, embroidery, and other Asiatic arts. It was probably such immigrants and gifts that were boastfully referred to in the official texts as tribute exacted by Pharaoh from the chiefs of Retenu. The pharaoh employs a more aloof and even peremptory tone when writing to his vassal kings in Palestine and Syria. The preamble is brief, and the ending often contains an implied threat with the assurance that the king is mighty and his chariots many and ready. The reply of the vassals is couched in a suitably servile form and invariably refers to the pharaoh as their son, their god, even while the rebellion was being actively fermented. The picture that these incomplete records give us of the world that lay to the north of the Egyptian border is confused in its details. We shall discuss in Chapter 11 some problems of historical interpretation that the Amarna letters have bequeathed us. Here we shall content ourselves with sketching the broad outlines of the story, which are more straightforward. While Egypt was too remote from its living space to be seriously threatened by the struggle for dominance that was being waged between Mitanni and the Hittites, with the Assyrians waiting to intervene and the Babylonians staking their claims, these nations were concerned to keep her from engaging in their dynastic wars on the side of their foes. Burnaburiash of Babylon was sensitive to any favors that an Assyrian deputation might have received at the Egyptian court and reminds Pharaoh that the Canaanites sought his help in invading Egyptian territory in his father's reign. He warned them off by invoking his alliance with Egypt, and he expected a similar reaction by the Egyptians to any Assyrian mission. The king of Alashia, thought to be Cyprus or Enkomi in Cyprus, also requested that Pharaoh not treaty with the Hittites and North Syrians. The few surviving drafts of letters that the pharaoh addressed to his fellow monarchs are mainly concerned with negotiations for his marriage to their daughters. The ambition of Amenophis III, like an earlier Solomon, to fill his harem with foreign princesses was not just to justify the recherche tastes of a lascivious despot. The custom was long-standing. Thutmose III and Thutmose IV had contracted marriages with daughters of foreign kings, and their cases cannot have been isolated. Amenophis III espoused Gilukipa of Mitanni in his tenth regnal year, and later wedded her niece, Tadukipa, probably on her death. Such marriages were a tangible expression of a diplomatic alliance, and the negotiations that preceded the dispatch of the bride and her retinue were often protracted. The extent and nature of her dowry had first to be agreed upon, And then the pharaoh himself offered a bride price, which gave a further excellent chance of haggling. The inventories which have survived of the trousseau of these princesses read like a catalogue of the contents of a state treasury of the time. Gold, jewels, gold and silver vessels, horses, chariots, weapons, bedsteads, chests, and other furniture overlaid with gold, mirrors and braziers of bronze, bronze vessels and instruments, elaborately embroidered clothing, bedclothes, stone vessels full of oils, spices, and so forth. As we have learned from the commemorative scarab, the retinues were considerable and must have included many skilled needlewomen and musicians and a powerful armed escort. The weight of gold and silver used in the manufacture and embellishing of the various items is always carefully stated, just as it is with other royal gifts, perhaps to ensure that a proper bargain will be struck, but also doubtless to ensure against pilfering en route. In return, the pharaoh sent similar gifts, particularly ebony furniture overlaid with gold and silver and inlaid with coloured stones and opaque glass, objects in ivory, stone vessels, oils, gold and silver statues, clothing, fine linen, and above all, the gold in worked and bullion form for which Egypt was so renowned. These marriages, which were negotiated with the Hittites, Babylonians, Mitannian, and local dynasties, were like important state trading enterprises at a time of autaki when private commerce could only have been sparse and marginal. The foreign kings write to their brother in Egypt to request that good relations be maintained or complain of misdemeanors committed against their nationals in the territories subject to Pharaoh. Thus, Bonaburiash had to complain twice that caravans had been plundered and their merchants had slain on Egyptian-held lands. He asked that Pharaoh should make good the loss and punish the culprits. The king of Alashia asked for the price of a consignment of wood taken from his people by Egyptians. He also requested that the possessions of one of his subjects who had died in Egypt should be sent back by the hand of his messenger, since the man's wife and child were still in Alashia. Ashurubalit of Assyria was vexed to hear that Pharaoh's messengers had been molested by Bedouin in his territories, and did not rest until he had pursued and captured the miscreants. The one demand which all these foreign rulers alike make of the Pharaoh is for gold. Send gold quickly, in very significant quantities, so that I may finish a work I am undertaking. For gold is as dust in the land of my brother." This is the burden of nearly all their letters, and when they are not begging for gold, they are complaining about the niggardly quantity which has been sent, or about its quality which was not up to expectations when assayed. The large deposits of gold that Egypt could mine in her eastern desert, in Nubia and Sudan, made her respected and courted by the nations of the Near East. Judging from the Amarna Letters Nephilim correspondence, The great powers were cordial enough in their relations with Egypt in the later years of Amenophis III. The vassal princes appeared to be in their usual state of endemic bickering and intrigue. A display of force had been deemed advisable earlier in the reign when Pharaoh had visited Sidon, and he also dispatched troops to help Ribadi of Byblos against his rival Abdiashirta of Amuru. Notorious troublemakers, like the latter, were violently removed from the scene when admonitions had failed to check them in their interminable conspiracies. As soon as they disappeared, however, new dissidents took their place. However, the general impression left by the letters is that if the mutual accusations of perfidy, rapine, menace, and mayhem are not accepted at their face value from the vassal princes, the king's commissioners with the aid of Egyptian troops from the garrison towns and local loyalists could keep the situation in hand and by playing off one ruler against his rivals to keep both in check.